What we're doing is targeting the, the goal-oriented neural pathways from the brain instead of the automatic neural pathways from the brain. Um, and that allows you to kind of rewire or rethink how you are moving. So just by changing, just by setting a goal, we change the intention behind the movement. By changing the intention behind the movement, we are activating a different part of the brain to initiate that movement. So in people with Parkinson's specifically, what happens with freezing of gait is there is a specific neural pathway in the brain that gets damaged or disconnected. That makes it so that when your brain is sending that signal to initiate movement, it just doesn't get to the motor neurons that are activating your muscles. And this is that automatic neural pathway that, you know, if when you and I think, okay, I'm just going to get up and walk over there, that's the automatic neural pathway that allows you to say, okay, right foot, left foot, you know, keep stepping, activate these muscles. Um, that pathway gets damaged for people with Parkinson's. So we, what we want to do is activate a different neural pathway to be able to initiate the same movement. So in simple terms, we're activating goal-oriented neural pathways instead of automatic neural pathways. Speaking of de oro, Sydney, which food gets your Medalla de oro or gold medal? California rolls or Texas bark? <laughs> Um, actually, neither. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat California rolls or barbecue. Okay, well, what gets your what gets your Medalla de Oro then? Food specifically. Food specifically. Um, I really like tacos. You some really good tacos, Austin. What what vegetarian tacos are are good? Because honestly, that is that is something I haven't considered before, and honestly, I'm oh, really? going to try. Yeah. So many. So Veracruz has a really good um, taco called El Diferente. It's very good. It has like uh, refried beans and cactus in it. And it has potato and uh, mushrooms. It's really, really good. Um, but we made some tacos last night that were sweet potatoes, cashews, black beans, and zucchini. Definitely very differente, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, whenever I get down to, to either California or Texas, I'll definitely try either one of those. This isn't a podcast that's about tacos, though, uh, nor about California rolls or unfortunately Texas barbecue, but it's how it's about the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and med tech. With us today is the one and only Sydney Collin, the co-founder and CEO of DeOro Devices. Sydney, how's it going? What's been new with you since we last chatted? So much. There's lots of things happening. Um, thank you so much for having me here, Jeff. I really appreciate it. I'm excited for the conversation today. Um, I mean, you know what startup world is like. There's a million things happening at once, and I'm just trying as hard as I can to keep my head on straight. What are the first, like, what are the top three things that have happened since we last chatted? Because I'm sure that a million things have happened, but what's been most exciting or most terrifying for you? Um, well, we're doing a big direct-to-consumer push right now. So we just filmed a TV commercial that's going live this quarter. Um, we signed a distribution agreement with McKesson, so we'll be launching with McKesson as well, which is exciting on their consumer channel. So again, on the direct-to-consumer side. Um, and we're seeing huge growth on our clinical channel, actually, which is really interesting because that isn't something that we were actively pursuing. We we're pursuing the direct-to-consumer. Um, but we started to see a big intake in 
physical therapists and hospitals purchase tumors for use in the clinic. That's awesome. And for the context of those who don't know what, or I guess what McKesson is, what is, what is McKesson? McKesson is the seventh largest company in the U.S. Uh, they distribute a, a third of all pharmaceuticals in the U.S. Uh, it's a medical device distribution company. So basically you're swimming with the big fish. <laughs> the big deal for us, for sure. Um, that must be super exciting. Thank you. Something that I should mention and is our, uh, we just got awarded, we're a finalist in the Digital Health Awards, the UCSF Digital Health Awards for the consumer wellness category. So I just announced that on LinkedIn last week as well, which is exciting. And there's hundreds of companies that applied for that. So it's fun to see. And we'll be Big at the finalist event in health. We'll be exhibiting at health, the conference in Vegas. I did not. Oh, oh, that, that, okay. That health. I see. I always, I always try to like visualize the word with its, with its proper spelling with actual vowels, but apparently conferences can't spell with vowels. My bad. Uh, but beyond that, uh, normally I, I, I ask the question that I'm going to ask next to, to, I guess, you know, move the conversation forward later in the conversation when we've discussed kind of your origins, et cetera. But I feel like you can handle this. How would you describe what your company does to a five-year-old with only monosyllabic and bisyllabic words? People, everyone has failed so far, by the way. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really hoping that you can actually nail this. We help you walk. That's how I would describe it. Um, I can add a little bit more though. Uh, we help you walk with, I'm trying to make sure that I don't go over it. <laughs> We help you walk with um, laser and sound alerts or laser and sound cues, I should say. Or actually, there's a, a marketing agency that we're working with just came out with a really good word. I think, I'm not going to remember it. It wasn't target. It was signal. There's uh, laser and sound signals that trick your brain into moving. Mm-hmm. And who does it help or does what your device, sorry, I am post-clinic, so my brain is very fried right now. Who does your device help the most? Who is that you, that, the, that, that your five-year-old's explanation, uh, what, who is that explanation targeted to? Wow, I, I can't really speak right now, can I? So it was started for, it was built for people with Parkinson's. So that was originally our target market, but right now we're actively redoing our, all of our messaging because we've been publishing research outside of Parkinson's and stroke and palsy and multiple sclerosis and MSA and traumatic brain injury. Um, so there's many, many, many more applications outside of Parkinson's, but really it's anybody with a mobility impairment, such as, you know, um, uneven gait symmetry, gait asymmetry, ataxia, scissoring. Um, any sort of abnormal gait patterns, we can use our visual and auditory cues or signals uh, to help normalize those gait patterns and allow someone to walk safer at home. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, why are these signals useful? Is there any way that you can break it down to us, the audience, myself, as to why these signals are needed? Is there a specific target like neuronal loop? 
um, that, you know, this device targets to make walking easier when it's difficult for this whole range of neurological conditions that you've mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty simple. I mean, what we're doing is targeting the the goal-oriented neural pathways from the brain instead of the automatic neural pathways from the brain. Um, and that allows you to kind of rewire or rethink how you are moving. So just by changing, just by setting a goal, we change the intention behind the movement. By changing the intention behind the movement, we are activating a different part of the brain to initiate that movement. So in people with Parkinson's specifically, what happens with freezing of gait is there is a specific neural pathway in the brain that gets damaged or disconnected. That makes it so that when your brain is sending that signal to initiate movement, it just doesn't get to the motor neurons that are activating your muscles. And this is that automatic neural pathway that, you know, if when you and I think, okay, I'm just going to get up and walk over there, that's the automatic neural pathway that allows you to say, okay, right foot, left foot, you know, keep stepping, activate these muscles. Um, that pathway gets damaged for people with Parkinson's. So we, what we want to do is activate a different neural pathway to be able to initiate the same movement. So in simple terms, we're activating goal-oriented neural pathways instead of automatic neural pathways. So Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. And I guess, is that same pathway damaged in all the other neurological conditions that you mentioned? Or is there an unexplained mechanism by which there is more generalized applicability uh, for your device? So it can be in stroke. And um, in some of the other neurological disorders, it can be the same neural pathway. Um, it's not always, though. And really, these visual monitor cues can be used as a tool, whether somebody has a neurological condition or not, to be able to create kind of gate symmetry. You know, you have a target on the floor and you say step to this line that ensures that you have a certain stride length, you know, so it allows you to practice being able to walk with this longer stride length than when you were shuffling before. So for some people, it's kind of just used as a tool, as a goal. For some people, it is you know, physically bypassing a damaged neural pathway in the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fascinating that there's generalized applicability and that it, I guess, solves one of the biggest issues that Parkinsonian patients face when trying to get around. Because if you think of it, mobility is so very important to, I guess, everyday life. If you can't move necessarily by yourself, then, I mean, your quality of life goes way down the drain. You just become much more dependent on the people around you, which is hard. You know, it's hard physically and emotionally for people. For Jack, you know, this device that Jack is the person I made this device for originally, local veteran and slow. Um, but for Jack, it was, you know, the difference of being able to go to the bathroom by himself or being or needing his wife's sanity to push him to the bathroom in a wheelchair. You know, is the difference of being able to go on a walk with his wife or have her push him. You know, it's. It's these little things that make a really big difference in independence and somebody's kind of emotional feeling like they're a burden on somebody else. And if we can impact that, if we can allow people to be able to do something themselves that they couldn't do before, uh, that has a huge impact on people and their caregivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how logistically it improves things so much to have someone be able to get around, get to the washroom by themselves and emotionally being able to walk aside, uh, walk alongside a loved one instead of being pushed by them. There's just something there that feels different. And I absolutely see the impact that what you're doing has on 
so many patients who have poor quality of life because of Parkinson's and other associated neurological disorders. So, I mean, let's, let's flash back way back when, not when this all started, but before it all started, you told me when we chatted about, I, I think a month or two ago, that you did ballet for 10 years, then you quit because you had to make the decision between school and ballet. I mean, this is probably an overused trope of a question, but what did you take away from that experience, either of having to quit something that you'd stuck to for such a long time or just the discipline of sticking to ballet overall? I think there's a lot that I learned in that whole process. I think ballet, especially with the San Francisco Ballet, it's very traditional. It's very... um you know, the rules that you follow are very strict, um, provides a lot of structure for a kid. Um, so I think that I learned a lot from that and kind of learning to just push yourself more than I ever had before, um, in different ways, you know, in pushing yourself to practice every day and pushing yourself in the class to, you know, do the triple pirouette that you didn't think you could do. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of learning there. And then just on the, you know, pushing yourself in any sport, um, but also on the performance side, that's a whole other piece of it. That's very interesting, you know, learning to perform in front of a group of people, learning to, you know, if you mess up, don't show it on your face and learning to work with the other people on the stage of the person in front of you messes up, you follow them, you know, which is just. Yeah, it's just interesting. Was ballet where, I guess, your interest in movement started, or am I just reading too much into it? Not particularly. Um, you know, I think I've always thought that exercise is really important. You know, I even after ballet, I mean, I do all sorts of exercise to make sure that I'm moving every day. Um, whether that's, you know, going to orange theory classes or I rode a 70 mile, 75 mile bike ride recently, um, just doing anything, all sorts of activities to move my body, I think is really important. I don't necessarily think that that's linked to ballet, even though I did have the, uh, the habit, I should say, if you say hobby, it's like, that's not the right word, the habit of exercising every day and I think stopping that is a very strange feeling for your body so I've always been very active yeah. since then and I see yeah. how much that impacts my physical and mental health so I've always seen for myself how important that is and then you start to look into the research and you find exercise is the only thing that has been shown to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease and there's so many health benefits for people outside of Parkinson's it's really incredible mm-hmm Mm -hmm. I mean, for one, I took an orange theory trial class once and just never again. It was the, the, the level of competition that that board inspires in you is, uh, it's extremely motivating, but you're just so gassed at the end. It's, it's, I mean, I guess that's the point. I guess that's the point. That is that's the beside the point of what we're talking about. Um, so you ended up choosing, uh, Cal Poly after like quitting ballet, you ended up working with Mencia Technologies a company that uh, develops brain-computer interfaces uh, in France. 
Um, and that company specifically designed devices to provide neurofeedback for the treatment of CNS disorders like ADHD. That seemed like an incremental approach to the use of a technology such as neurofeedback. And that seems to contrast with what Elon Musk, for better or for worse, has done uh, with or is aiming to do with Neuralink. So I just wanted to hear what your perspective is when it comes to uh, incremental or moonshot approaches to health tech. Which one do you think is the most appropriate approach, I guess, generally? Because, I mean, there's no one size fits all, is there? It's an interesting question. I think both. I think you have to have a bigger kind of mission, a bigger purpose for why you're doing something and where you want to go. Yet there are a lot of smaller steps to get there. Um, and sometimes, you know, like this device that we have, it's a laser line to metronome. You know, it's not hugely innovative. We're not, you know, creating the next electric vehicle. We're not creating the next, you know, device that will ship people to the moon or ship people to Mars. You know, it's it's something that is pretty simple and but so effective. And that's something that was so frustrating for me when I was looking into the research. You know, these visual imager cues were standard practice in any physical therapy clinic. They we had over a hundred peer-reviewed articles showing the efficacy. We know that these visual imager cues work. And yet there wasn't a way for people to use these cues at home. It was so frustrating to me that something like so simple. I made a prototype in a, a summer one time, you know, simple, easy to create, easy to get out to people. We can go direct to consumer. I shouldn't say easy. You know, there's a lot to think about on the sales and marketing side, but, but something that's so simple and so well known to be effective doesn't exist in the world already. I thought that was so frustrating. So I think that these, you know, small, you know, not super, you know, um, groundbreaking technology can really have a huge impact on people's lives and need to be out there. And we also need the technology that people don't think is going to make it. And yet we put in hundreds of millions of dollars to test it out because it would be that impactful if we could. So that's what I think we do with a lot of like the clinical trials that we do with a lot of research is testing out, okay, we don't know if this is going to work, but let's put in hundreds of millions of dollars to test it out because if it did work, it would change people's lives. That's fair enough. I guess maybe to reframe that question then, um, you know, now that I'm reflecting on what you said, it's true that even like a reusable rocket is an incremental step forward technically um, from a rocket that already exists or an electric car is an incremental step. You're just putting an electric motor into a car. But really, what really matters is how you nail the go-to-market in terms of being able to actually execute putting the device or changing behavior to use that technology to make that massive impact. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I think that, you know, we can have all sorts of technology, but what really matters is how is this going to affect the people that are going to use it and what's the impact that it's going to have. That's what matters the most to me. Because when we were developing this, trust me, there were lots, you know, hundreds of features I wanted to add and I wanted to keep working on it and make it this like 
really cool device that could connect to your phone and collect all this data. And I think that there's a place for that. But for this population that, are, that I'm going after, it means a lot to have something that's just really simple and easy to use. You know, that's really as low tech as you could possibly make it. Make the buttons big. You know, don't make it as pretty as you can make it. Make the buttons big and easy to use because that's what's going to, you know, be effective for our target customers. That's fair enough. I think designing for a geriatric um, or even movement disordered audience must be so different from, I guess, the, the, the standard, I guess, way you design for the generalized population. And you just mentioned some ways in which it differs, but did it take a lot of deep thinking to go through that? Or was it, what was that thinking or was that notion there from the start? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Oh, so what, what I, what I had said was basically you're absolutely right that seniors and populations that are movement disordered, uh, absolutely are different from a generalized population to design for, uh, was it a series of trial and error that, uh, through which you found, uh, the proper way to design your product for your target consumers, or was it something that you knew from the start because you had it in with the Parkinsonian community? A lot of testing. I mean, we designed this with a person with Parkinson's, right? So there's a lot of testing with him and with the Parkinson's support group locally where we showed the company. Um, but there was a lot of testing after we had our first prototypes. There was a lot of testing after we had our second prototypes. Um, we still are constantly doing research to understand First of all, how to how to get information out to our population. ARP does a lot of great focus groups. And we're actually an innovation labs company for ARP. So they'll do focus groups and ask people about our technology. And we'll get a lot of great information from that. Um, but it's yeah, a lot of a lot of testing, a lot of putting together our own, you know, focus groups, beta users, all sorts of different types of testing. And even now with the product mm -hmm. out on the market, we do a lot of customer surveys and call and interview our customers. We have a customer advisory board that we put together anytime we want to do any design changes. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's like an iterative process, despite the fact that you already have the product market. And that's super interesting because that allows you to continue to figure out how your product should continue to evolve as you, I guess, touch more of the population with what you've developed. But speaking of, I guess, you know, customer advisory boards, your first customer advisory board was Jack Brill or is Jack Brill, a veteran who suffers from Parkinson's disease, who you met before you left Cal Poly. He seems to be pretty instrumental overall, to be totally frank, uh, to your trajectory as a founder. Which two moments uh, best encapsulate how Jack inspired and continues to inspire the work that you've done with your company? Two moments. Arbitrary. Is that what you're asking? Okay. Two moments, yeah. Um, I mean, everything that that we do is inspired by Jack and all of the moments that we have together. So it's really hard for me to pick two. Um, so 
I mean, Jack helped design this whole thing. Um, so he came to us and asked for help in creating this type of technology. Um, I don't think I could give you two moments that inspired me to do this, but he definitely was the person that pushed me to start this company and to get this technology out to more people besides just him. Um, he brought me to a support mm-hmm. group, a Parkinson support group, to show off this new technology and you know, introduced me to 20 or 30 other people who also lived with Parkinson's disease and suffered from breaching the gate. And that, I mean, that moment itself was instrumental for me because, you know, meeting people face to face who made the technology are asking for this technology made it really difficult for me to not pursue it and not get it out to the people who need it. Because I couldn't live with myself if I looked these people in the eyes and said, I have every ability to make this device for you, but I'm just going to. I don't feel like it. I feel like going to go join this other biomedical company. Um, so. So I think that was a really big moment. But I think just Jack in general was a very giving, selfless man. And the more that I learned about his life and everything that he had done, from his volunteer work to teaching, he was an engineering professor. And just the way that he interacts with the people in his community, like it's so clear how much he cares about everybody that he meets in the world. You know, he ended up starting an investment company that uh, was an impact investing company, one of the first impact investing companies that existed because she really wanted to make the world a better place. And that was a really magical and beautiful thing about him and definitely still inspires me today. And I hope that we can make a mm-hmm. with what we're able to accomplish with this company. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.